A Tiny Revolution features adults having adult conversations, which means that adult language is probably going to be present, just so you know. Hey there, you're listening to A Tiny Revolution, a podcast featuring conversations of ordinary people living revolutionary lives. My name is Kevin Garcia, and welcome to episode 55, my friends. Sorry the episode is late. I was busy doing things in North Carolina, a.k.a. one of the most racist states I've ever been in. That's not to knock North Carolina, but it is to call attention to a problem. But that's another story for another time. But thanks for tuning in this week. I'm so stoked you're here. A couple of announcements on my end. I am actually launching a second podcast. It's called Reconnect. And so if you have been journeying with me on Patreon, you'll know that uh, part of the rewards that we have for listeners and supporters who support this work at $7 or more per month You guys have had access to a daily devotional, and if you haven't noticed, uh, it's because you weren't opening it. Um, So I figured, what's an easier way for people to connect and get in touch with uh, a more biblical, spiritual, or kind of a way of reconnecting with scripture? Maybe a podcast would be the answer. And not only that, it gives me a chance to flex my teaching muscles. So if you want to get with that, um, become a Patreon supporter. It's very simple. All you got to do is go to patreon.com slash thekevingarcia, become a supporter at $7 or more per month, and every single week in your feed, you'll be getting a new podcast, which is going to be me reflecting on texts from the lectionary, um, adding some of my own thoughts and adding some good into your life. So if you're looking to reconnect with scripture, uh, reconnect with some sort of teaching, uh, this is the thing to do. So go to patreon.com slash the Kevin Garcia and learn more about that. Additionally, I want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online therapy platform. So if you're someone out there who is looking for a way to get some help, maybe you can't really afford to go to traditional therapy or therapy in an office, or maybe somebody's out of your network, BetterHelp is a really fantastic option. Everything from texting to video chats to phone calls, it is an affordable and easy way for you to get the mental health uh, help that you need. So again, go to. Uh, I'm going to put a link in the description box. Click that, and it'll take you directly to BetterHelp. They have plans from $35 a week all the way up to 65 which is way cheaper than what so many of us pay out of pocket in regular therapist's office. And I'm telling you, people, if you're not loving yourself right now, this is this is a good way to practice some good self-care, some self-love. So again, thanks to BetterHelp for partnering with me to making this podcast possible. Let's go ahead and jump into the conversation today. Today, I have my friend Tuina Verma-Rash, who is a reverend with a very complicated relationship with Jesus. She lives a hyphenated life as a second-generation Indian-American woman raised in a devout Hindu household and often finds herself in liminal spaces. She's ordained in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and is called to the work of the representation of God's full diversity in the church. Her work focuses on dismantling white supremacy and conversations on the complexity of identities. She loves stories and believes that sharing narratives are integral to building relationships. She also blogs at This Lutheran Life on Medium and is a contributing writer to The Salt Collective. And she also tweets at TV Rash. And I'll get you those descriptions and links and all that stuff at the end of the show. When she's not writing or working to decolonize mainline Protestant traditions, she's reading anything she can get her hands on, listening to podcasts on politics and pop culture, and watching movies with her spouse. Which, by the way, if you were at Why Christian this year, her spouse made her outfit, which was stunning. So if you're listening, um, I need something made for my next speaking gig, so holler at me. I need a need a help, sir. So, all right, I'm done talking. Thank you so much for tuning in. Grab yourself something that you like to drink. Grab a friend, sit down, shut up, and listen to this amazing conversation with my friend, the Reverend Tuhina Rash. 
Okay, um, how to do this in a very brief moment. I, um, I am a second generation Indian American woman born and raised in Denver, Colorado in a devout and faithful Hindu household um, that formed me and shaped me into the person that I am today. I met Jesus when I was 24 years old and that scared me to death. Mm. Uh, and then I met Jesus again, um, well, repeatedly, but I was baptized when I was 26 years old. Um, I went to seminary a year later, a year and a half later. Wow. So um, like you got baptized and then went to seminary, just like off the bat. Yeah. yeah. Actually, the pastor who baptized me right a week out, like it was like literally a week after he baptized me, he's like, you should go to seminary. And I told him, you need to take that and shove it up your ass. <laughs> Yes, I would have done the same. Yes, and he just loved to tell that story. Um, Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Um, so I went to seminary. I started at a seminary in Southern California, Fuller Seminary, which is non-denominational. When I tell yeah. people I went to Fuller, they're like, oh. Yeah, I have a couple of, I have a couple of friends who chose to go there of their own volition, and I'm just like, oh, dope. You know? Yeah. So I went to Fuller and then I discovered that while it was a good place for some things, it was a place where there were things that I just could not agree with um, and things that just were so polar opposite to how I understood God in the world and, and an embodied God as well Yeah. Um, that I, I couldn't stay. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, it's not to say it was bad but it's not to say that it worked yeah um yeah um and then i transferred to pacific lutheran theological seminary i graduated in 2012 i was ordained in 2013 in the elca my, right in the elca yes and my first parish was saint paul lutheran church in oakland california and it was the best first call in the world. And then the senior pastor retired and I left soon after he did because our identities were really tied to the congregation and to the parish. And I think it was one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make, but it's hard to leave people that you love and that love you back. But knowing for everybody to be a healthier community and figure out who they are I felt like this was this was the separation that I needed. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted the congregation to be healthy and I and for me I just felt like that's where the spirit was leading. Yeah. Yeah. Um I served a congregation in Palo Alto for 10 months. Um I spent just I spent actually about a year and a half um doing work for decolonized Lutheranism. Oh, that sounds dope. It yeah, it was intense. And then I just kind of started being a wandering Aramean. I currently serve on the teaching staff of University AME Zion in Palo Alto. And yeah, just doing the thing. And here you are. And here we are. Wow, that is like such a list. I know, when people are like, so tell me like a brief intro. And I'm like, it's oh. like oh, okay. No, it's the same thing with me. I'm just like, it's like, what chapter do you want right now? Because we could go a couple different ways. Right, right. And so it's like, what, yeah, what season of life? Because we could be here a while. Yeah. And I like, I think that's something that I really like about you is the fact that you do like 
not only like I know everyone has a story and whatnot, but just like being able to craft it and actually tell it well in a way that's interesting um, is a whole other set of skills, in my opinion. Thank you. Um, so, what were we talking about just before I interrupted you and asked for your introduction? Oh, um, idolatry. Yes, um, <laughs> the idolatry of no know, knowing, thinking that you know something, or thinking that you have a handle on something, especially in I guess I assume in regards to the matters of faith well and i think like initially it started with podcasting but then you know (laughs) let's just talk about theology (laughs) as as we most often do like that's like usually and that's also like something that i think has been like a barrier in my dating life sometimes is because like for example i uh i was see i went out with this guy one time and we're sitting there just like having drinks that i went on this rant about like missions work and white colonialism and how i've like needed to repent of like being a part of a missions organization and he was uh he had no idea what i was talking about um but but that's usually where i go is a lot of times is like and i think that's i mean because like i was like i grew up in evangelicalism so like i can't not talk about jesus Right, right. Well, and like when I'm with other pastors and my spouse is a software engineer who also like sews amazing clothes. Um, um, yes, that's something else I need to talk about. But we'll save that for a minute later. Okay. Um, and so when I'm with like other pastors or other people that are in seminary or other people who are like, like steeped in theology, it's kind of like we kind of exist in this really bizarre world of how to see the world. Um, and how to talk about the world and how to talk about God in the world and Jesus in the world and the Holy Spirit in the world. And my husband is just kind of like, he's supportive and he gets it. But I think part of it, it's like when I hang out with him and his software engineer peeps mm-hmm. and like, oh, my God, that's like a whole different language and culture. And right. and, they, and it's kind of like, oh, like, how do we kind of like, how do we bridge the gap? Hmm. Between just like uh, like pastory theologian types and the rest of everybody else. Well, even like software engineers and everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I guess that's what, what the interesting thing about having a diverse body. Yeah, and I think like there's so much to talk about and there's so much to learn from. And wow, okay, so like I don't know if you know this about me, like I am like a human pinball machine. I can, like, go from topic to topic without even, like, any form of, like, relevant tangent. No, that's totally fine, and I'm here for it. Okay, awesome, because we were talking about idolatry. <laughs> yes. Um, And I think, like, this is something that I'm coming up against in, like, these very present days mm-hmm. of... Um, you know, because, like, I, were, I was a co-curator of, like, a controversial Advent devotional... Um, that sounds dope. Right. Well, it was called Fuck This Shit. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I actually saw this on the interwebs. Okay. Um, so I, I helped co-curate that with my friend and co-conspirator, Jason Chestnut. Work. Yes. Um, and apparently, like, some people are so confined with how they express themselves to God and in community and in Christian community that they're like, these words are inappropriate. And it's like, okay, great. Let's talk about what's inappropriate. Yeah. Um, 
you know, because we can talk about all different levels of inappropriate and all different sorts of inappropriate. And there's, you know, these wildly different interpretations of how people read scripture and live out scripture. And sometimes I think people are actually like, to me, scripture is not meant to bind you. It's meant to set you free. Yes. Um, that, and that we have to call out the evils in the world. I mean, this is in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. Like, I'm, mm. I'm not just going to be like, well, it's about Jesus. Well, yeah, for me as a Christian, it's about Jesus, but also it's about like who God is in the midst of the world as we see in like the Pentateuch and as we see in the Hebrew prophets. Um, and I just feel like some people, some people have just used the Bible as an idol. Uh, yeah. Like that's uh, like, there's like oftentimes, like I think growing up in like the South and growing up in like evangelicalism, it's like the father and the son and the Holy Bible. Um, like no room for, uh, you know, your own individual experience, no room for like the Holy spirit that's moving and active and living in your body to say anything. And I say specifically like in your body, because like we're also taught to not trust our own bodies, you know, our, our, uh, desires or our urges are the things that like make us, us. Right. Right. And I think it's just, then why would God be embodied if we're supposed to deny our bodies? Mm -hmm. Say more about that. Like, what does it mean for God to be embodied? So God didn't have to take on the human form of Jesus. Um, because for me, this is, this is what, this is what just resonates so loudly, like in my heart and in my bones that God took on the entirety of human experience, like being born into this world and like living and breathing and healing and speaking and turning over tables and preaching and prophesying and weeping and eating and drinking and, and being put on trial and, and dying. Um, you don't, that's just not an apparition. That's not just, that's, that's really like being within the world you've created. And I can't really, I think like I come from a tradition of embodied gods. Like I think about the, the gods of human form in Hinduism that have come to interact with humanity. And so Jesus taking the entirety of that on as well, just why are we to deny, to deny our bodies if God has created us in these bodies and God has also taken on human form? Yeah. Uh, can I ask you a question? Because like, I know uh, from what you said here and also from your dope-ass talk at Wild... Not Wild Goose. Why Christian? Excuse me. Um, or, oh my God, there should be one called Wild Christian. Oh, yeah. Sign us up. That's the next conference we're going to start, the Wild Christian Conference. Yes. Um, Side tangent for a second. Did you... Uh, there was this thing that was happening in Nashville a few months ago called the Bad Christian Conference, which was, like, made up of a bunch of theobrogians who were, like, pseudo-progressive, but actually, like, horrible misogynists. And, horrible misogynists and, like, not pro-LGBTQ and the whole nine yards but they called it the bad christian podcast because they're basically just a bunch of bros who sit around and drink beer and yes i'm calling them out on my podcast because they try to drag my friend in on public media so i'm going to drag them on my public media because that's how it works honey um so but anyways um we had an idea about starting um the worst christian conference 
and calling it the worst Christian conference and just like really going hard, but like trying not to be, um, actually the worst, but trying to be like, you know, try being the worst. Yeah. (laughs) Striving to be, uh, striving to be good Christians, but knowing that we're all the worst because that's just kind of like human nature in some regards. Anyways, um, that's, that was in regards to wild Christian and why Christian and our conference ideas for the future. If anyone steals this, remember, I'll just come after you on public media. Don't worry about it. Right. Because this is going public. Yeah. We're taking it to the streets. Um, but I would love to pick your brain about, cause you were raised Hindu. Yes. Um, you were raised Hindu and something that you said in your talk really resonated with me. Like you were naming the three different names of gods and then you named uh, three Hindu gods along with that as just like embodiments or different aspects of God's personality. Mm-hmm. Um, did having the, your upbringing as a, as a Hindu um, make it easier to kind of like get this idea of a, of an embodied God and an embodied spirituality? I think like I've actually had to work for that um, because I think growing up in a Hindu household that I just did what my parents told me to do. Um, and I think also being the child of immigrants, it's like your parents gave up everything so you could have this life in the United States. So you best listen to them. Right. And you're first generation Uh, American. Um, so, uh, second generation. Ah. So my parents immigrated in 1970 Mm -hmm. and then I was born and raised here as, um, and my brother too. So I think about like, I, I did it because I think it's just like, that's what you do as a child that, you know, my parents told me. And so therefore, because my parents told me this, it's, it has to be true. Yeah. It was your world. Yeah. That is my world because that's, that's the world that I knew. And that's the world of faith that I knew. Um, and I really came into the sense of embodiment. It actually took Christianity to really get me to recognize embodiment and the Mm -hmm. moves of the Holy spirit at work in the world today and among us today. And to realize that, you know, the, the reality of Teresa of Avila's poem of we are the hands and feet, um, you know, that Christ has no voice in the world, but yours, Christ has no hands in the world, but yours, um, that it's when I became a Christian, that embodiment really became very real, particularly at the Eucharist. Yes. Um, because I think, I didn't realize how much of my life I had been starving for a relationship with God until I took the Eucharist for the first time as a baptized Christian. I just want to like marinate on that. (laughs) Yeah. I, um, I remember my first time like actually understanding what the Eucharist was outside of, cause like, again, growing up evangelical, we have like grape juice and the little chiclet that they give you in, in a little plate that they pass around. Mm-hmm. Is this unfamiliar language to you? The chiclet, yes. Um, it's like this little cardboard piece of cracker. Okay. That, that they call the body of Christ. And I'm just like, this is a ridiculous, this is ridiculous. Like, I know what a chiclet is, but I'm like, it basically, I mean, it looks like a chiclet. Okay. But it's like a crust, a, a thing of bread, but a chiclet shaped piece of bread. Yeah. But it's like white and flavorless. Like most of the evangelical church. Oh, oh, <laughs> that was a good one. I'm gonna I'm gonna save that one for later. <laughs> um, 
But um, it was actually after the Pulse shooting um, two-ish years ago. Like, the whole world blurs together. I guess it was... 20 it was 2016 because it was it was right after it was about seven months after it came out um but uh when i went to this memorial service i was in a bar that was put on by a really dope lutheran church um i remember uh the pastor like giving this like beautiful uh explanation of like who the eucharist was for and like and being so explicit about just like who god loved and the lives that were lost and just how God loves the queer community. And I remember taking it and like hearing when she, uh, passed, you know, tore a piece of bread and gave it to me. And she said, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And then I received the wine from, uh, a man in a wheelchair who said, this is the the blood of Christ shed for you. And I heard it for what was the first time in my life to understand that just like, this this is not just about like you know some words or some ritual that I do on a Sunday, but like this is God has done this thing for me with God's own body, and it just like so every single time I take the Eucharist now, it always takes me back to that moment, and I just I I'm not gonna lie, I cry every time I take Eucharist, and that's like not even like being dramatic. But I think it's one of the most brutal and beautiful things we could ever experience. Mm. Um, And I think because one of the things that one of the things that actually gives me an immense amount of like, I just, I feel like my heart could burst and like glitter could just come out of it um, Mm -hmm. is distributing the Eucharist and like looking at people saying, this is the body of Christ, you know, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Um, and it was so powerful at Why Christian to have people come up and take up um, Reverend Gail Song Bantam on her challenge, her yeah. dare, to say yes. Yes, to it this. is. Uh, it was incredible. That was an incredible moment. I think what was also very cool for me was... Um, getting to serve in the role that I did that day. Uh, you were, you were like a bomb ass assisting minister. Like you were meant <laughs> to be there. Thank you. I received that. Yes. yes. I have a, I have a couple of friends of mine who tell me that eventually I'm going to end up in the Lutheran church. And, uh, I told that to Nadia and she said, well, stay out as long as you can. And I was like, Oh, all right. Word. Or you can be like me and be, um, ecclesiologically promiscuous. <laughs> ecclesiologically promiscuous because like you're ordained in the ELCA and you serve in an AME church. Is that correct? Yep. So yeah, I'm in an AME Zion church, but kind of, uh, yeah. Yeah. Because God can't really be boxed into a denomination. Um, I think Lutheran theology is where my heart sings, but you know, we're not the only game in town. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think that's something that is like, a, th- a very similar feeling to what I have. And like, when I think about my future as a seminarian, cause I'm starting seminary this summer at a Presbyterian seminary. Sweet. And, um, something that I have been thinking about in the way of, you know, just like who I am and who I'm going to become. Like, as I learn more about the Lutheran tradition, like I love the liturgy of the Lutheran tradition and I love the theology of the Lutheran tradition. Um, and I also, because I was raised pretty much Baptist, like, you know, I have this, uh, this heart for kind of more expressive, 
a more expressive worship style. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm probably going to end up in the same place you are being ecclesiological, ecclesiologically promiscuous. Is that the phrase? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, which... At least that's what I've been using. <laughs> Was that a term that you came up with or did somebody give that to you? I think, I think Nadia coined the term ecumenically. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of, I don't know. <laughs> but I do believe that Nadia came up with the term um, ecumenically promiscuous. I'm down. Yeah. That sounds fun to me. Um, uh, I'm trying to, a couple of different things. I wanted to pick on uh, one other thing from your talk. Um, when I think it was probably the thing that made all of like the, all the white people in the room get really tense uh-huh. Um, is when you said white supremacy is killing all of us. Yes. Um, it is. Yeah. Agreed. <gasps> um, when, when you do like, like I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. It's like when you're dealing with like white, fr- like, do you deal with white fragility or do you oh just my say, God. or do you just like say the thing and like, you know, let, you know, keep on going because like you don't have time for it. Um, it depends on the situation and it depends on the individual and my relationship with the individual. Wisdom. Um, yeah, I think it's just kind of like, oh my God, I could blow off so many people. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, but some people I have like very well established relationships with. Um, and sometimes I will just tell them like, I'll, I'll call the thing what it is. Like, here's the thing this is really white and you got to stop. Um, and then other times people that I know, but like, don't like know me. Um, that's when I'll just say like, I need you to go find another white person. Like I really need another white person to explain this to you because I am really tired. Um, and that's actually what happened in a lot of my work with decolonized Lutheranism Hmm. is that I was traveling all over the country like asking predominantly white communities, like, you know, what does the word decolonize mean to you? And some people were really receptive and some people were just really incredibly defensive. Um, And it was places where I was like amazingly surprised where like I already had like mental barriers built up of like this group. I don't think they're going to get it. It's a rural setting. It's really white. And I'm just going to put up my guard and I go into this gathering and these, these clergy are just on it. Like they're like, yeah, if we talk about decolonizing, we're talking about dismantling structures and systems of power and looking at things horizontally as opposed to hierarchy. We're talking about liberation. Um, you know, we're talking about like, you know, the, the ills that this country has been built upon. And I was like, oh my God, these people are amazing. And then I go to like areas of the country that are deemed as liberal. And that's where I actually like started to get in like yelling matches with people after presentations. Really? Yeah. Um, Because I, and this is really hard in the ELCA because when I talk about white supremacy and I'm actually getting flack for this right now, um, people are like, you hate white people. And I'm like, (laughs) "Um, have you met my spouse? Um, yep. Here are my um, receipts, everyone. I married one of you. You're fine. Right. Um, but I don't abide by systems of 
power and privilege that not just oppress but kill. Yes. And and God did not set up a world of white supremacy. Like that is not an invention of God. That is an invention of idolatry and of man. Yes. Yes. And so when I said that white like white supremacist Christianity. And it's really funny because if you like read my notes from my talk, I didn't capitalize the C in Christianity because to me, that's not Christianity. Yes. I think part of this has been really hard. Um, Living as a woman of color in a very, white world and being an Asian American, which is also being really white adjacent, Mm -hmm. uh, being viewed as the model minority, like, well, the Asians who moved to this country can do it. Why can't you? Which is essentially white supremacy's mode of dividing and conquering. Mm. Um, And I'm just like, I am, I am not your model minority. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. So um, yeah, like, and it was kind of weird because it's like, you know, you could hear some people clapping. I think I heard you like, bring it, girl. Like, Oh, yes. I was shouting for everybody in that place. And um, But then I could also see some people just kind of like staring at me like, what did she just say? <laughs> well, because like they don't even see the fact that like white supremacy has like made its, w- made its way into their own personal practice because right. it's sneaky like that. Slash, it was like the system we were born into. Right. And it's a drug. And so I say that whiteness is a hell of a drug and that at some point in time, we are all on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that some of us are in rehab. Um, some of us like this is this is the best metaphor I could think of. And that like some people are so on it that they are just high as a kite. Like wow. they just do not know how much they are on it. Like trying to... Um, like there's some people who are like, I don't have white privilege, and they bring up like, <laughs> sorry, and I'm, that was just so funny to me. Yeah, in the saddest way possible. Right, right, and so like having to explain the differentiation between classism and racism. Right, right, and that that there's different systems of of oppressive structures, and that we that we all can fall under different systems of oppression. Um, but that oppression is there and that white supremacy is like, I mean, it's not, it's a drug. It is just, it is such a powerful drug that like, you kind of have to go to like white supremacist anonymous meetings and be like, hi, that's my, a real thing. that should be a real thing if it's not right. Right. And that like, you should be like, hi, my name is Tuhina and like, I've been on white supremacy, even I've though I'm on white supremacy. That's a phrase. Yeah. Even though I'm brown, like, you know, I could buy into the myths and the lies of white supremacy. Um, because, you know, there's also the really shitty aspect of internalized racism that white yeah. supremacy just like denies you your humanity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, being in a predominantly like white mainline Protestant denomination yeah, there's a problem. <laughs> Hello? 
over 96% white and like we're just trying to work on getting like you know butts of color in the pews and it's like why don't you look at the other 96% and have a come to brown Jesus moment and ask what's really going on here that's going to be the title of the episode come to brown Jesus I love me some brown Jesus it was Mm. uh like growing up and you know, you know, I grew up with like white Jesus because it, especially like, um, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane looking like a freaking supermodel, like, oh my God. and like that light in the hair, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, if I had long hair. I would want it like that again. Oh, it was so, I'm just like, that's a Jesus. You can definitely like, you know, fall in love with slash put on the front of a romance novel and he- totally inaccurate. Uh, or more uh, than likely, and I mean, like, duh, inaccurate because Jesus wasn't blonde. Um, but it's it's one of those things. Like, I remember um, beginning to like wake up to my own. It was it was actually like six months after I'd come out. I went to Academy for Racial Justice with Reformation Project, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, realizing that it's not for so long for me. Like coming out was like a, the just like okay, I I'm okay. I'm gay and God is okay with this. And now I need to learn why God is okay with this. And then like very quickly after that, I was very fortunate to fall into groups of people who kind of like introduced me to my own bullshit. And those are the best people though. They really are because a lot of people won't do that or like don't know that you have bullshit. Um, and so it, it quickly became about so much more. So I feel, and at the same time, I still, I still also have friends in my life who will text me and say, Hey, uh, it doesn't happen as often now. Thank God. So I think that's like one of my metrics for growth, but they'll say like, Hey, that tweet you put out earlier, uh, maybe think about something else. I'm like, Oh, you right. I'm sorry that. Okay. But can I also say the thing that pisses me off so much among, uh, especially white cis people is that mm-hmm. when you explain something that is either race related or LGBTQ related and they just go on the defensive automatically rather than, you know, like, it's like, well, I've got gay friends. I've got brown friends. I've got black friends. I'm just like, I know you do. And that's great. And uh, what you said is not okay. And we, you know, we're also, we're a broken people. I think like that was the other thing that I had talked about at White Christian. Like I mess up all the time. Mm-hmm. Like I, I want to be a good, like, I don't even want to be a good, like I want to be a good accompanier. I mean, like I'm, I just, I don't like the word ally and I am nowhere near the level of accomplice. Mm. Um, because like accomplice is like, you are in it. Like you're putting your body on the line. Like, accomplice is like that is that is conspiracy that is breathing together Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and like that is where i would love to be but then the realization of it's also not about me um and that like okay what does it mean to actually like conspire and just breathe with and not just be like well i have so and so or get super defensive because i know in my brain i'll do it like uh, because it's like a reaction it's like salt there's like the weird thing about like idolatry and being broken is self preservation mm-hmm. <laughs> um and and that's like a weird reflex yeah a really yeah. weird reflex well thinking oh. about brain science like i don't think it's yep. as weird as we might make it out to be only because like if you know, when you 
you know, our first move is usually defense. That's just because like the culture we've been raised in. And mm-hmm. then when you, when we hit defense, we hit our amygdala and our amygdala basically goes into flight or fight. And a lot of the time we, we opt for fight, especially those of us who like work in like activism or uh, ministry work and like people who are natural leaders. Um, you know, we like, we think that we've, you know, I've done my work. I know the things. And oftentimes like we can believe our own hype. Um, and that's the same true with like anybody that you're going to like encounter is that if you say like, Hey, you know, you're on the white, white supremacy drug, they're going to be like, I'm not a white supremacist. I was like, well, you might not be a skinhead, but these are the ways in which you benefit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think about talking with my family about race. I think about, uh, talking with like some of my, uh, gay guy friends here in Atlanta about, let me specify white gay guy friends, which honestly I don't have many cause they are, <laughs> I won't say that they're just as bad, but like they're up there. They're, they're up there. Um, but, but it's, it's one of these things where just like, because we are so worried about screwing up, we're so mm-hmm. worried about saying the wrong thing that so many people won't even take the first step on the journey of actually be like figuring out how to, you know, decolonize their, their thought processes. They're unwilling to like, uh, unlearn, unlearn heteronormativity. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh my gosh. Absolutely. Because I know that it's so ingrained in my system and it's so ingrained in like the culture in which, you know, my parents came from and then the culture in the United States, like, you know, the, the oppressive narrative, of like, you must be this way and you must buy into the system. And then it's just amazing of like, we're all high on something. And it's not fun stuff. Apparently. Oh, it's not, no. I mean, it's fun. It's fun for some people, obviously, but then like when it's not like, it just gets real bad. Well, and I think like, that's where like the rehab comes into play. And like the, like when you go to like, you know, your anonymous group meeting, like, you know, cishet anonymous or cishet anonymous. That's good. Or white supremacist anonymous, um, anonymous that, you know, we have to, yeah, that we have to, we have to name it. And, and part of naming it, I think is like that part of it is going against that self-preservation. And, you know, for me is like believing in Christ of like, you know, you brought up the amygdala. I'm like, God, oh, if I could just turn that damn thing off. Right? Oh, my God. <gasps> Lord, why did you make evolution go this way? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's just, it's something that I really wrestle with. I don't want to be, and I think, like, in the age of social media, there's a lot of performative allyship. Oh, my God, yes. And it's just, I need to ask myself, like, why am I saying this or why am I doing this? And so it's just, is it because I truly believe it or is it because it's the performative thing? Yeah. And like for me, that's why embodiment matters a lot now, because if you embody this, if this is in your bones, you can't wipe that away. Yeah. I think it's the, uh, the thing of just like once you know you can't unknow once you taste you can't untaste mm-hmm. um and I think like that's how it happens for so many or at least that's, that's what happened for my life when I was finally able to come out that's what happens for so many people who 
move from, you know, very conservative positions on everything to uh, beginning to open up. It's just like once I saw, you know, once I met Jesus in in my friends, my brown friends and my queer friends, like, I, I can't not know that, that that Jesus is with them. It's like, you know, it's like what, uh, kind of like, um, when the apostles went to the Gentiles house and the Holy Spirit fell on all of them, it's like, uh, we can't keep them from being baptized because God's already doing this thing. Right. And, and so it's like waking people up to the fact that it's like, this is what God is doing. God is working to decentralize whiteness and, and bring this more, robust and uh, diverse body and I don't say diverse as like you know like a cop out word but truly a diverse body together to you know bring about the liberation of all creation yeah yeah like if we're going to talk about the full representation of creation like if we're if we're going to you know really get really get honest and and even brutally honest about diversity like I think it's I think it's more than we could ever like possibly imagine. Right. Right. Can I ask a question um, that is going to require imagination? No. Okay, cool. Bye. I'll see you later. (laughs) It was great. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, What being that you and I are, uh, well, you've been working in, you know, the church and in advocacy for uh, some time and I am kind of new to this world. Um, but as someone who's like, I'm beginning my journey with seminary and I'm beginning my journey like into vocational ministry, what's mm-hmm. something that you wish you would have known starting out that you know now? I had people out there the entire time and I didn't even know it. Hmm. I think part of it, like, okay, so coming in as a newly baptized pers- person, an Asian American. So people just assumed that I knew about like the Asian American Pacific Islander desk at like the ELCA churchwide offices. Hmm. Guess how I found out about it. You stumbled into it by accident. Guess how accidentally. I do not know. I Googled Asian Lutherans. Oh, wow. Right. I Googled Asian Lutherans. My, second year of seminary oh so not even the first one so you just thought you were with your by your lonesome right i just thought like you know the whole sesame street song like one of these things is not like you know yeah because yeah i mean like i get that i'm weird i get that i'm awkward um but i just felt even weirder and more awkward um so when I Googled Asian Lutherans and I had a grant to like go visit Asian and Asian American Lutherans across the United States, I was wow. like, where have y'all been? Like, why, why didn't anybody come and find me? And they were like, well, we, we didn't know you were there. Wow. And what was so that like for you to like interact with other Asian Lutherans? Um, so there's, so there was some generational disconnect. So kind of like, the um, the first generation that like directly immigrated from Asia to here that are working now, I think there was a lot of like I felt like I was in a relationship with my parents. Interesting. Yeah, kind of like the um, the whole kind of like distance between youth and elders, and the way that you were supposed to treat your elders because you're at least in India you're supposed to treat your elders in a very specific way. Right. And- and I could feel those behavior patterns coming about. But like when I started meeting like Asian Americans, like 1.5 and second generation, it was just kind of like, 
where you been? Mm. Or even like fifth generation Asian Americans. Like, yeah, it's just been kind of like, I found my people. I found my people. And also like people of color in seminary, because at least at the ELCA seminaries, not a whole lot. And, and, you know, marginalized populations in seminaries, I think go through some just really not great stuff. And that's me being like super polite. Like, (laughs) I can't, thank you. You're giving me so much hope for my, my, uh, theological education. I can't wait. Right. (laughs) It's just like sunshine and puppies. Yeah. I'm Um, not questioning anything that I think I've already known everything. I just need the degree. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, so like I found my friends and there are people that like I went through seminary with that like, I know they will have my back in a fist fight because it almost happened. I mean, that's important. Yeah. Yeah. I know that they will have my back in a fist fight. Um, you know, like the people that like came to meet me at my apartment after I got punched in the face at the inauguration day protest. Mm. Those were my friends from seminary. Mm. Um, yeah, and so finding finding your people is that changed my life. That changed my perspective on seminary. And the other thing is realizing that it's a game. Oh my god, after I talk to you about this, you're going to be like, "I'm not going to seminary." <laughs> no, no, no. I've uh, I've already made my deposit, so like it's it's going to happen. <laughs> so part of it is like holding the like you this this is the this is the part that like really kind of upset me in a way that I had to learn the dominant narrative. And I know that there are like voices clamoring underneath this narrative, desiring to be heard. And so I started taking classes that like people like that you wouldn't expect like a cishet white male Lutheran to take. So I ended up like exploring like this whole new world of like dance and theology Huh. huh. Like oh actual, my God. like literal dance and like with your body? Uh-huh. Huh. Yeah, it was great. So I took um I took a class on um liturgical dancing and dancing for theology or dancing as theology. Oh my god, those classes like fed me and like gave me life because I actually got to use my body and like the I mean that was embodied theology right there. Yeah. Um, I took a class on Asian American theologies. Um, Dr. Joanne Doy, if if you're out there in the world, like, thank you for saving my life. Mm-hmm. It was really like the professors of color that like saved my life, actually, that got me through seminary. Because they, they got it on a whole nother level that your white professors probably couldn't. Right, because they understood that they had to learn that they had to carry multiple stories in their bodies. And that was the other time that I learned that multiple truths can exist at the same space at the same time. Maybe one truth is like heard more than the other truths. Mm -hmm. But this is when I came to realize, like, look, if Jesus can be like, you know, if Jesus can be human and divine simultaneously, and if God can be creator, redeemer and sustainer, yeah, you sure as hell can hold multiple truths in the same space at the same time. And that, that that to me is like the thing that like the realization that like wrecked my faith initially and the thing that also like allowed me to hold on and let it to let it evolve into something much bigger because I, you know, 
I grew up with a faith that was like built like a house of cards. And so like to, to question one thing was like, the question is then, okay, if I'm wrong about this one thing, what else am I wrong about? Because like, you know, like if, if everything is so fixed and so fragile, like you begin to change your mind even a little bit, like the things fall apart. And that I think is also like at the root of so much of people not getting on board with, uh, you know, justice work or intersectional justice work, because like they, aren't willing to interrogate their own experiences or their own uh, theologies or how their theology is lived out in the bodies of other people. Mm-hmm. It's, I've... and it's hella hard work. I mean, this is some of the hardest work. Yeah, it really but is. It's, but it's so needed. And so worth it. Mm-hmm. Oh I, my gosh. I, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I think some of the people that like I get to work with, like I, I am in awe of of them and and how and how they see the world and how they see God in the world and how they see God acting in the world and how they see the call for God for us to participate in justice work, um, because we like I, like I can't see God. God has to be a God of justice. If God's not a God of justice, then it's, to me, it's just a big old golden calf. Boom. Whoop. There it is. (laughs) I feel like that's like a really good place to like put a pen in it. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. I feel like it's been like, it's been, it's been pretty deep and intense. Yeah. Like, and, and like, that's, I mean, like I love deep and intense theological discussions, but now I'm like, Oh my God, I really have to like, think about it. Like <laughs> now I you have to go to, unpack everything you just said. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like I, feel like I need to go like write this down and like, kind of like, I need to just like write on the walls. <laughs> hey, if you've, if you have the means and, uh, your partner won't be pissed at you. I mean, or even if you will, like that's none of my business. You guys do what you want. I mean, like, he'll just be like, so you wrote on the walls. And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you like being married? Oh, my God, I love it. Um, <laughs> I think it's, I, I, okay, let me rephrase that. I love being married to my spouse. Mm. Um, if it's just like being married, no. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, but I love being married to my spouse because like when I get to see the world through my spouse's eyes, like I get to see the world in a brand new way. Um, and just kind of like, I get to see joy in a way that I don't get to embody it. Right. Um, and like he is supportive of like, me going to seminary, me becoming a pastor, me traveling around the country, talking to white people about how they need to decolonize everything. Right. Like me, like, you know, facilitate, you know, co-facilitating conferences. And then me like at white Christian, like he was like there and like cheering me on and like, and he worked so hard on my outfit. Like, yes. And that was a look. It was so cute. Still is cute. He worked so hard on that. Um, 
and just like was up like late at night sewing because he mm. wanted it to be perfect. <sighs> I melt. Uh, <laughs> I don't have tears in my eyes. You do. Um, I'm not crying. You are truly. Um, oh. but like, I love being married to him because I also think like he loves to sew. He loves to cook. He loves to bake. He um. Does he have a gay brother? No. Well, this is horrible. <laughs> and like I like kind of like manage the household and like pay our bills and do our accounting. Come on, flipping um, gender roles. Well, I think it's just like I feel like we came from like these very kind of like gender normative households, but in our married life, we just want each other to be. God, what a God, fucking what concept. A- like, that's what I love about, like, being married to, to my spouse is that, like, you know, he, he doesn't expect me to have, like, dinner ready for him unless, like, he wants really bad food. <laughs> like, I don't do the dishes. Like, uh, it, and we do things together. Like, we grocery shop together. Um, you know, we do laundry together. Um, yeah, I think it's just, like, because we really... I feel like we really rely on one another mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's not just like one person doing one thing and one person doing another thing. Yeah. yeah. It's like you guys are partners. What a concept. Right. And that like, we don't have to like live into these expectations that, that people have placed on us. Right. Right. Good for you. That's so dope. I like that. And I like you and I like your partner. He was very kind when I got to when I talked to him, and I didn't realize that he was the one who made your outfit. And I was I scrimped, I scrimped. <laughs> he he is he is one of the kindest people I've ever met in my life, and generous. And yeah, I I am in awe of him. <sighs> so, like you're saying that you like you like him a lot is what I'm hearing. Yeah, I, cool. I, yeah, just, you know, crushing a little. So you guys, like, kiss and stuff? Oh, my God. So cute. <laughs> he carries my books home from the library. Oh, God. I would give anything for someone to actually just go to the library with me. Oh, my God. Come visit us. We're at the library, like, every other day. <laughs> done. Done. Where, you're, are you still in California? Or are you, like, up in Minnesota with, like, the rest of the Lutherans? Oh, no. California. Spiritual, but not religious. Oh, dope. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> same. Same, girl. Same. No, I'm spiritual and religious. Well, see, the thing is, it's like California is a land of spiritual, but not religious. And mm. I'm just kind of like, it's spiritual and religious. Like, don't get me wrong. God is in nature. Like, I can see God in the sunrise and I can see God in the sunset. But I, like, I have to rely on my siblings to hold me accountable right. to what it means to be in this place and in this time and to see the face of God in my neighbor. Like, I can't just do that by myself. I know. I'm the same way, and that's the same reason I'm still in church, because on my own, I'm fairly horrible. Like, I, because I don't want, like, I don't want to do the work. Like, I don't want to do the right thing half the time. It's, it's this thing of, like, um, and this is also something, um, I've learned about, like, Eastern versus Western culture. Like, you know, in Eastern culture, it's like, I know who I am when I'm with my people versus mm-hmm. like a Western mindset of like, I know who I am with when I'm by myself doing my own thing. And I think that's a big mindset shift for me. of just like, okay, like 
I want to be with my people because they remind me of like the promises of my baptism. They remind me of the things I, I, I need to do and the things that God has called me to. Right. And like the reminder of like, you know, the Hindu prayers of like, these are not just individual prayers. These are prayers for others. Yeah. Um, that these are the prayers for the people around you and for the world around you. And that not only do you have to pray these words in order for this prayer to mean anything, you have to engage. Yo, that right there. Sorry. So no more just hashtag thoughts and prayers, people. Right? Because we like, are embodied for a reason. Hello, word made flesh. Mm. That was my conversation with Reverend Tuina Verma Rash. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. I love you, girl. Um, if you want to connect with her, you can go to her website, which is tuinavrash.com, spelled T U H I N A V R A S C H E.com. And you can also connect with her across social media at TV Rash, which is, you know, I just spelled it for you and I'm not going to do it again. So rewind it if you need it or click the links in the description below. A Tiny Revolution is produced in part with Sonia Bowen and 87 other amazing contributors who are pledging their support every single month on this amazing platform called Patreon. If you didn't know what that is, it is a way for you to support the creatives in your life who are doing the work of creating stuff, doing the emotional labor of putting our life on the internet. So if this podcast has been good for you, if the videos or the blogs have been informative or helpful in any way, I would highly encourage you to help help me out because I am an independent creative. While I do have some support from people like BetterHelp or uh, every now and again getting an advertisement on here. It's not exactly uh, it's not exactly a walk in the park trying to produce this stuff with no money. And honey, I still got bills to pay. This shit ain't free. So if you want to become a part of the revolution, if you want to be somebody who is helping make work like this possible and accessible to more people, please become a sustaining partner. Because think about it this way. Um, say you're going out with your friends to grab some drinks at the end of the night. And then when you ask the server for your bill, they just say, uh, yeah, you know, just pay whatever you think the drinks were worth. Um, and you're just like, uh, okay, and you pay whatever you think it's worth. But that's not how it works, right? But that is how it works with independent creatives. We create all this content and we put it out there on the internet because a lot of us know that it's helping. And we, a lot of us know that it's part of our ministry. Um, and a lot of us know that um, if other people didn't create content for us, we would not be able to be where we are today. Um, so I'm committed to this work and all I'm doing is asking you to commit to the work as well. So if you've got a dollar, two dollars, five dollars a month, if you're spending money on iced coffee every day, honey, you've got money to support the work that in podcasts that you're listening to. OK, so go to patreon.com slash the Kevin Garcia. Learn how you can become a supporting partner. Learn about the perks. And uh, let's do this. Let's make more queer, Christian, and progressive content uh, to make the world a better place. Okay, done talking about that. Special thanks to my friend John Gilpatrick at Higher Level Studio for letting me step in for a minute and record the front and back end of this podcast. I think that's everything I need to say. Um, Go subscribe to the blog. Catch me on the YouTubes. Follow me on social media. All those links are in the description box. And yeah, I love you so much. So go see your therapist, drink some water, go do some yoga if that's your thing. Go on a run if that's your thing. Or you know what? Veg out on the couch if that's what you need right now. But do something that makes you feel good about yourself. I love you. You're great. This has been another episode of A Tiny Revolution. My name is Kevin Garcia, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.